0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Donald Bloxham and A. Dirk Moses to the show. They're the editors of a terrific new book, a volume titled, Genocide, Key Themes. Both Donald and Dirk are familiar figures in genocide studies, and on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, Donald is Richard Pears Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh, And he joined me for a conversation early in the history of this channel, almost 10 years ago, about his, uh, at that time, new book, The Final Solution to Genocide. Dirk is the Anne and Bernard Spitzer Professor of International Relations at the City College of New York and a senior editor for the Journal of Genocide Research. And I've not myself had the pleasure of talking with Dirk before, but about a year ago, he talked with my co-host, Jeff Bachman, about his book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security and the Language of Transgression. Dirk and Donald, thanks for joining us. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies.
2: No, good to be here. Thanks very much for having us. So,
0: and I guess I'll ask Donald to start. This book emerges out of kind of a similar project. Uh, the Oxford, or, or, or maybe emerges is not the right verb, but uh, uh, responds to, is in conversation with an earlier volume, the Oxford Handbook on Genocide Studies, published in 2010. Um, I'd like to start, Donald, uh, Maybe you could say a little bit about that book uh, and what it was for uh, and how the present book emerged out of that or in response to it or in conversation with
2: it. Yes, well, thank you. As you say, this the, the handbook's now unbelievably 12 years old, and at the time we wanted to produce something that was quite comprehensive, um, whilst at the same time also trying to have a distinct sort of historical take. So it was a combination of um, essays on different dis- disciplinary perspectives, um, but with a foregrounding of, of historical of case studies written by historians and um, a series of conceptual essays too on topics like gender and genocide, ethnic cleansing and genocide, the state and genocide, genocide and memory and so forth. And then a series of essays also on um, responses to genocide in the international community, uh, legal, political and so forth. And um, so we were, we were hoping to hit a number of different to press a number of different buttons there and, and and the book's generally been very well received i think and it has this kind of somewhat encyclopedic quality and we were very pleased with especially the i think the way in which we try to address genocide across time thinking about changes and continuities in different temporal as well as um, spatial contexts and um it's a very large book, though, uh, as you, <laughs> anyone who's picked it up will realise. a very weighty book. It's about 700 pages. Um, Oxford University Press, who published it, wanted us to produce something which built on it but was more um, portable. Um, and asked us, in the first instance, I think they invited us simply to republish um, revised copies of some of the essays. And a number of the essays in there, roughly half of them, are um are upgraded versions, updated versions of, of essays that appeared in in the handbook, but they're all uh, about the other half of freshly um, commissioned for the for this this book itself, gentile key themes. And I'm looking at it now, and I think the driving idea here, while the, while the handbook was an attempt to be quite thematically comprehensive, we also wanted it to be not historically comprehensive. Of course, nothing could ever be that, but certainly, you know, historically very broad ranging in terms of its case studies. The new genocide key themes book. We just left case studies out of it entirely. Um, firstly, because that's the area in which so much new work being done all the time. You can't keep up on that. And it, and it would again, it would mean, this book was even longer. And the whole idea of this would be that this book was significantly shorter. It comes in at about four hundred pages. Um, very nice paperback edition. Very reasonably priced. The but the, the idea here really was to make it entirely thematic. So we could dig out a number of the essays and and um, update them. Ones I mentioned before, genocide and gender, uh, genocide and state. Um, we also managed to commission some that we tried to commission for the handbook in the first place, genocide and war, genocide and empire. But for various reasons, they'd fallen through at the time. So it was a really great opportunity to get back to those. And then also feed in areas covering scholarship that had really sort of progressed in the meanwhile between 2010 when we published the handbook and now. Um, so we've got some you know, some, some really excellent new essays on subjects like predicting genocide um, and uh, an essay on the absence of genocide in the presence of risk, i.e. negative case studies uh, when genocide does not occur. An essay on ideology and genocide, uh, um, as mentioned, genocide and empire, genocide and war, um, uh, genocide in the limits of transitional justice, um Dirk entirely but he can talk about that himself rewrote his introductory essay to the volume and so yeah this is a very much this is a conceptual um a conceptual uh, uh collection and the strength here is that all of uh, the authors for each of those chapters draws on a whole range of cases but we really wanted to foreground the concepts here to to kind of excite the reader but without overwhelming them and that's what I hope uh, we've achieved
0: and, and you say excite the reader who's who's the audience that you were aiming for?
2: Here, we were told, we were given, I think we were given fairly specific guidelines, kind but of, with, with, our idea here is, we we, we describe it in the introduction as an entry-level text. Yeah. Um, so, we would hope, but the university entry-level text, but we would hope for Lay readers would get a lot from this. Well, all of the essays, I think, are written in a pretty accessible style, and they've got these useful short bibliographies at the end as well, with a dozen or so, ten or a dozen key texts on on on, on any given topic that we discuss. But I think they're written in a sufficiently accessible way to to be generally, you know, to be to be generally useful. But you know, our, our ideal audience in our minds was were were undergraduates who might be studying genocide. Uh, and, and, and postgraduates will be studying genocide as well. And um, but also I think you know any academic who's interested in the topic will, you know, it's testament apart from anything else, to, to the incredible variety of this field. I mean, it's proliferating, right? It's, there's an exponential expansion of genocide studies, you know better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I was re- rereading some of the essays in preparation for this interview, actually, and mm-hmm. I'm worried to say about how many of the books that are referenced in the footnotes I just haven't read. You know? I mean, this is not embarrassing, but at the same time, uh, it's it's really testament to. But we're hoping this is a we're hoping this is a way into this massive field that these are like provide a trunk and a few branches, and then you can go and look at the sub branches and twigs and whatnot. Um, but that's the idea. But I, yes, yeah, that's our idea, and I and I think we've more or less pulled it off actually.
0: Yeah, Dirk, I see you nodding. Um, is there anything you want to expand on with that, or?
1: yeah the I echo everything that that Donald says, uh, and would just like to uh, reiterate that you know we were you know we were disappointed when the chapter on war and genocide mm-hmm. and empire and genocide didn't eventuate. Well, the two chapters didn't eventuate in two thousand and ten. Uh, but, you know, but you know when when you have a project with you know twenty five to thirty five chapters, like all these Oxford handbooks are, some of them are even longer. There's always a couple that don't make it because people have complicated lives, and in the end they they don't deliver. And then it's too late to commission another one. I mean, these are the, the kind of the back the backstories to a lot of edited volumes. And so we were we were um, you know very happy when when Oxford agreed, somewhat with some arm twisting on our side, actually that you know we wouldn't just publish an abridged version of the the handbook uh, to be sure updated, but actually could add as many new chapters as we thought was necessary to to give the volume into intellectual integrity it was also an opportunity to to add some diversity in terms of authors um, along you know various axes which looking back now the original one you know was somewhat lacking but you know our sensibilities have improved a bit since then I think and also the field there are just more people in the field now yeah. than there were you have to understand the book the original book although well, the, the handbook was published in 2010, but it was in planning for years before. So the, you know, the lay of the land is, is very different uh, from you know, 15, 20 years ago. You no,
0: know, I, I think that comes through and I wanna poke at some of the ways that these essays are different um, from what might have been written 20 years ago as we go along. And and obviously we can't look at all of these essays and, and I'd like to group some of them together as we go, but, but first each of you contributed an essay or co written essay. And so Dirk, um, I wanted to start with your essay just by reading a part of the last or the, the last part of the last sentence um, of the essay, where you conclude your essay with a with a question, maybe it's kind of rhetorical given the rest, but maybe not. And so you write is the concept and law of genocide fit for the purpose? so so what is the purpose and do you think it's it's fit for that
1: so uh, this is the heart of the question and it and it the fact that i'm posing it at all uh, as i do in the book from which it's derived the problems of genocide which came out a year and a half ago indicates how my own views on the matter have changed over the last 20 years so you know from around you know the year 2000 until 2010 or so I was very interested in, in in the intellectual history of genocide to recover Raphael Lemkin, the, the Polish uh, Jewish jurist who invented the concept during the Second world War. so his very broad concept of genocide uh, so that it would become operable or utilizable for say indigenous scholarship or uh, scholarship on colonial genocides you know which I wrote quite a bit about uh in that period and hosted the first conference on the subject in 2003 in sydney and you know donald among others attended this conference so you know that's going back 19 years from now uh, but you know, by by about the year 2010 i saw that this proposition of an effort of conceptual stretching as as the political scientists call it actually reaches its limits because again and again i saw people uh, rejecting this conceptual stretching by saying, look, there, there can be no question of genocide in a place like Australia or North America or in other colonial situations because it doesn't resemble the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is the gold standard or the ideal type or the archetype of, of genocide. So uh, as well as being, you know, utterly unique. So there was this tension in that counter-argument. On the one hand, it's unique and can't be compared. On the other hand, it's somehow also the archetype for a generic concept called genocide. So I became very interested in, in these kinds of arguments and, and as an intellectual historian and political theorist, interested, like, where do these arguments even come from? And in fact, why do we even have this concept of genocide? Like, why don't we have other, another concept? You know, why did, why did genocide break through after the Second World War and not, say, crimes against humanity. Now, of course, crimes against humanity has lingered and is now in the Rome statute of the International Criminal Court, but it didn't become the subject of convention after the war. It disappeared, if you like, after the uh, Nuremberg trials where it was an operative concept. And I became interested in these rival concepts and, and sort of legal traditions and moral imaginations that go with them. And I came to the reluctant conclusion in revising my own position that the the concept of genocide is, is, as it were, a kind of a mistake. And that we would have been better off after the Second World War and ever since in, say, having crimes against humanity or an alternative concept, which I propose in this book um, mentioned before, which is permanent security. Now, we don't have time to get into that. But you know why? Why is genocide not fit for purpose? It's because the Holocaust is indeed the archetype or ideal type of the concept, and so when people want to make a genocide claim, they inevitably engage in analogizing with the Holocaust. And that, if it's if it is unique and it, it is distinctive in uh, in many ways, uniqueness is not a language I like because it's sort of theologically freighted, but. Op- Holocaust is in many ways a completely different kind of a series of events than than the the, the settler colonial conquest of Australia, which I do think had genocidal you know aspects. Uh, but you know putting these in one frame is just you know intellectually conceptually very fraught uh, uh, by using the concept of genocide as opposed to other concepts. So I I came to see that it, it got in the way because. victim groups or advocates for victim groups since the war engage in sort of this fruitless analogizing and trying to shoehorn their own circumstances into the history of the Second World War and thereby preclude the fact that all these cases, virtually all these cases like, say, the nigeria biafra War or the secession of East Pakistan from Pakistan in 1971 to form Bangladesh were uh, civil wars. Uh, and the like, in which um, there was mass civilian ca- casualties, or there were, and then at the time, uh, this sort of debate erupted about whether there's a genocide or not, and it was all this nitpicking about, about, well, did this look like the Holocaust? And so instead of engaging in a, in a serious uh, consideration of, you know, why is this violence taking place and what can we do to stop it, and to prevent that kind of thing in the future. Uh, the global community then, as now, engages in this, in this uh, debate about categories. Is it, is it genocide or not? And if it's not, and this is the clincher, then people go, well, and that's okay then. It's not so bad. I mean, there was an audible sigh of relief in Khartoum when, when the United Nations uh, Commission of Inquiry on what was going on in Darfur, I think it was, came out in 2005, said, this was crimes against humanity, uh, and not genocide, as if, as if crime against humanity were not such a bad thing and that they could live with that. And I think that's an appalling situation. And I was, I was interested in writing an account of how we got to that. And what I do in the chapter is show how in Lemkin's own thinking and then in in the sausage machine negotiations of the United Nations committees that hammered out the definition in 1947 and 1948, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, sticking points for nation states were removed so that the threshold of what constitutes genocide resembles a Holocaust. It is an extremely high threshold so that in you know, a very few cases, quote unquote, rise up to that level. And that lang- that level or well, that language of rising up it suffuses the language of, of, of um, humanitarian intervention, right? Uh, so that it... it, it so that nation states can wage the kind of warfare that, say, Russia's is waging, uh, which is, you know, highly destructive, but, you know, probably very difficult to legally classify as genocide. Or that the Americans waged in Vietnam and before that in, in North Korea, where the saturation bombing of large parts of that state killed two million people, most of them civilians. And, and it is never talked about in the field of genocide studies, right? So it's the emissions that are as interesting as is in, anything. And the concept of genocide is a filter or a lens which omits many mass casualty events uh, against civilians in the 20th century, the largest of which is the great leap forward possibly 45 million Chinese dead and not even a military context, right? But, you know, if we're interested in, in civilian destruction, then the genocide lens kind of gets in the way, and and you know the the the, the argument is deliberately radical, uh, and and is meant to you know rattle the cage epistemologically. Now a lot of people in the end may reject it, but I just want the I want them to denaturalize these intellectual and legal categories and not take them for granted as a given. So
0: I, I want to ask you about them now. I'll just point out to, to people who may want to read the volume. There's a lot of information about Raphael Lemkin himself in the essay that is really interesting and important in this. And, and I'll just point people to the book to, to get that uh, and also remind people, longtime listeners that, that um, there are a number of the books that Dirk cites here um, where there are podcast interviews back in the archives. So you can uh, hear Donna Lee freeze and Stephen Leonard Jacobs and some other people talk about their contributions to this field. Um, I've been trying to figure out a way to kind of frame this question. um, And I guess maybe I'll do it by introducing my background slightly because I'm old enough that genocide studies was emerging as a field when I was in graduate school. And so I was trained as a military historian uh, and in particular at that time in military history, uh, there was a lot of engagement with this question of total war as as a definite, as a category, categorical kind of question, but also as in terms of the writings of military theorists and strategists in the 19th and 20th century trying to understand how we came to a position of um, of embracing the targeting of civilians. And so I wonder... I don't know the answer to this question. I don't get to teach genocide studies very often at the small school I'm at. Is there an intersection you see with those two kind of literatures, genocide studies and the kind of military history attraction? You cite a couple books on air warfare and the emergence of air strategy. Which, I don't know. I'll stop there and see, see how you respond.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for raising that point, because it is quite central in, in the essay and also in the book. Uh, you know, the problem with the literature on the origins of the genocide concept is that it's so teleological and, and, and positive in the, and whiggish in the sense that you know, it takes Lemkin's own self-understanding as a you know, moral and intellectual uh, guiding point and narrates the success of, of his breakthrough and as a revelation of a truth. You know, finally, genocide is recognised. Finally, the crime without a name is named okay now methodologically i found that uh, problematic because it omits the issues that he omitted you know what what was the conversation or what were the conversations that were going on in the interwar period when he dreamed up the you know the origins of the genocide concept that he registered and contributed to and what were the ones that he ignored now the ones that he ignored are the two that you mentioned one was the uh, debate about total warfare, which came out of the First World War because you had the first total warfare, at least in Europe. I mean, in in, in the colonies, of course, the uh, indigenous peoples, colonized peoples had been subject to total warfare for quite a long time. But leaving that aside, within Europe, the First World War is the first experience of total warfare and then leads to, you know, a large scale theorization by by, you know, um, military strategists as well as some of the generals like Ludendorff, who wrote a book on Totaler Krieg. Uh the other debate that that emerges from the war is about and is related to total warfare is about aerial warfare, because for the first time you have, I mean, by today's standards obviously somewhat limited deployment of, of primitive aircraft. But, you know, people could see that, you know, this technology would quickly develop and evolve in the interwar period as it did. And we end up, you know, with um uh, B twenty is it B twenty nine flying fortresses, you know, by the end of the Second World War, which are dropping uh, nuclear weapons or atomic bombs, right? That's an enormous technological development within 30, 30, 40 years, right? And theor- air theorists could see that where that was heading. And that that would that it was theoretically and and practically possible to destroy enemy civilians uh, in great numbers and and very difficult to defend it and and therefore you know warfare because we're in we're talking about the mobilization of entire societies and not just the combatants on the front had involved entire societies and they theorized that well you know why should factory workers be off limits if their contribution to the war effort is really as important as the people firing the weapons they produced right so all these considerations going on which which uh Alighted the traditional distinction between combatants and civilians, which was the foundation of international humanitarian law, all the you know the laws and customs of war, you know, which go back centuries, and and which constituted for the quote unquote civilized European powers the distinction between civilized and savage warfare. I mean, one thing they always said is that you know we're civilized because we make this distinction, whereas you know these barbarians and savages are outside Europe. Uh, you know, mobilize their entire, you know, tribe, as it were, and kill entire other tribes. They're, they're, you know, and we have a right to rule them, uh, and and at, at times even destroy them if they rebel. Okay. Now, what's clear in the interwar period is that these kind of considerations break down because of the capacities of aerial warfare, and that you you are waging war on an entire enemy society. Now, Lumpkins is not interested in this really important debate, which you know when in the in the nuclear age is really important and and elemental he is only interested in a sense in the in the outcome of those minority treaties after the first world war in which the new states in East Central Europe uh, which emerged out of the collapse of the various um, defeated empires the Ottoman Empire the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and and the Russian Empire uh, these are the swath of states from the baltic to the black sea many of which are forced to for the price of statehood by the League of nations to accept these treaties in which they are they guarantee to treat their national minorities in a certain you know way and that they are answerable to the League of nations so it is a violation or or intrusion into their sovereignty which they deeply resented right but for for a polish jew like polk like like uh, uh lemkin you know this is an extremely important uh, feature of international law uh, given the anti-semitism that he and others experienced in in poland uh, and it was also consistent with his own his own prioritization of national identity as elemental to personal identity right? he was a he was a zionist uh, and um, so he his his view of humanity was one of you know, a symphony of nations, which is classical trope of liberal uh, nationalism, since Mazzini and Haider before him. Right. So, you know, but other other forms of Jewish politics in the interwar period, like autonomism or Bundism and so forth, shared this, you know, national view of uh, individual uh, identity. So him being a Zionist is actually not not that significant. The the significance is that he, along with virtually every other person in Europe Jewish or not Jewish prized nationality as elemental to human identity and the genocide convention really reflects that you know my view is that well that leaves other categories of civilians out of the protected out of protection you know and that they're covered however by a notion like crimes against humanity right so it ethnicizes our our, our, our human ontology and i, I don't think I just dispute that national identity is the first uh, or the most most important element of people's identities I mean maybe for some but not for others right what, you know the genocide convention doesn't include gender or sexual identity and it omits the you know category of, of civilians now what I show in the chapter is that in formulating the first draft convention that would then be subject to debate the Secretariat's draft at the United Nations, already omitted um, military necessity and, and civilians at large as a protected category because, of course, the Allies had been killing lots of civilians themselves, like dropping atomic weapons, right? And the last thing I want to do is create a convention which would criminalise the kind of behaviour they engaged in and and wanted to reserve the right to engage. And don't forget, the the British, and above all the Americans, had the, the advantage in, in aerial... Warfare and atomic weapons capacity uh, in the late 1940s. And the last thing I wanted to do was create a convention which criminalized that. It's also the reason they pressured the parties that were negotiating the Geneva Conventions in, 19, uh, in the, exactly the same period that was signed in 1949 to omit uh, nuclear weapons. So, you know, it's quite a dark story rather than one of heroic humanization of. Uh, of international law.
0: So so there's a number of ways this question comes up in this book. And I'll just point to one and ask you to kind of jump off from that. And that is in the chapter on um, genocide and war, um, where I think it's Michelle Moyd, I think I have that right.
1: Um, yeah, that's right.
0: Proposes that we should pay much more experience, attention than we have in the past to the experience of war by participants in thinking about genocide studies and and, and just simply crimes. And and her essay, among other things, suggests that we need to significantly expand the number of uh, conflicts that we see as genocidal. But really, I think, proposes a pretty significant reframing of how we should understand the field. So I wonder how you responded to those in either Dirk or Donald or both.
1: Well, we both encouraged her in this. I mean, you'll you'll see that she thanks us in mm-hmm. uh, in the in the acknowledgements and along with the many other people who read drafts. But we read multiple drafts and and uh, and encouraged her in a line of thinking. I mean, Donald Donald may be able to confirm this, but you know, in general, we don't interfere with people's arguments if they have a particular case they want to make. Uh, you know, we don't censor that, but we would you know we might feed them certain pieces of literature that we think, oh, this might be useful for you. And, you know, working with Michelle, who's now at Michigan State, uh, was a terrific experience. And, and her, I, I think her intervention is extremely important because she's effectively pleading for a decolonization of the genocide concept, for, if you like, a decolonial approach, because she herself is an expert on uh, warfare, colonial warfare in, by the German Empire in Africa, and, and particularly the experience of um, uh, African troops, and, and African victims. And she wants us to uh, hear the African victims when colonial victims more general. And for example, you know, fixating just say on the military aspect of counterinsurgency, which a number of us have been doing, saying genocide really is a version of counterinsurgency and vice versa. She says, what about when the formal hostilities end and colonial rule is then reasserted, uh, but in a formally peaceful mode, but in, involved the abduction or, of children for assimilation and the, the, you know, virtual enslavement of populations on plantations, which dismember their families and so forth. I mean, the structural violence or low intensity violence continues unabated, which, which affects those communities. And by, by fixating just on, you know, on labels, you know, when does genocide begin and when does it end, we, we, we miss the big picture. Uh, of the sort of the assault on these communities in different ways. But if we take the perspective of the of the of the victim communities and we have a, a very different sense of of what's going on here. And the genocide concept, at least as traditionally you know legally conceived, uh, isn't very helpful. In fact, it gets in the way.
2: Yes, I think that what one, one of the characteristics of so many of the essays in this book is that no, 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 Dirk's, Dirk's right. We, we we tend to let people kind of go in their own direction, and you know we we would inter, intervene editorially in the, in cases for which doesn't include Michelle's essay certainly it doesn't include that at all. But you know, occasionally, what if you if you if we saw an element where someone you thought someone was being unfair to someone else in argument, or in, you thought there might be some intellectual inconsistency, we might you know raise this with the author. Um, on the whole, we allowed. Scholars to 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 run with their own take on genocide, and and it's really interesting to see the ways in which different authors play with 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 the notion and in different ways. Because some will retain, remain faithful to what we might think of as a fairly conventional understanding of genocide, but then also add to their studies other instances of mass violence. So they'll keep the genocide distinction, but then look at other cases as well. Um, when we're talking about responding to, to genocide, we often talk now about responding to genocide and other mass atrocities, which is by definition to say that we don't think we should only respond to genocide. And and you'll see, you'll see variations on this theme when we talk about transitional justice, for instance. It doesn't have to be transitional justice specifically in relation to genocide. It's transitional justice is a way of societies attempting to come to terms with violent and traumatic pasts whatever the name we give to, 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 to that violence, we'll see that kind of coursing through. Some people will do this, will we'll attend to these considerations, as Michelle does, by really expanding the concept of genocide. Um, some people will do as, as Dirk has done, and, and actually say, well, we need to perhaps think whether there's any real utility left to this concept of genocide. Uh, um, and, and 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 other people will just say yeah we're going to keep the concept of genocide but also add some other stuff which is kind of cognate or similar to it so and i think each of the essays ha- it, it will does one one or other of those things really um and i, I we we said i think at the in somewhere in the introduction you know, we regard genocide just as a contested concept I and mean, there's no point in us positivistically trying to nail down a definition that's instantly going to become contested by by anyone, we're really just using the G word in a sense as a way in and knowing that lots of people are interested in genocide and it is you know, for better or for worse, it is this mobilisation slogan has become this mobilisation slogan And using that as a way in and then saying well okay the fact that it's a mobilisation slogan is at one side very useful another side problematic um, do we do away with it or do we expand it? Well, you know, without, it's not for us to decide. We've got some great, you know, Dirk's essay same one direction, Michelle's another. In a sense, they, they come from a very a similar sort of sensibility, I think, actually, even if their conclusions are slightly, are slightly different as to what we should do, you know, where, as, to, as, to, as, as, as to the retaining or otherwise of these categories. And really, I think, you know, looking at thinking thinking through the book, actually, not this is really important but it strikes me that probably a whole a, quite a bunch of people with very different political views have contributed to that to this book as well and um and um which i'm you know, quite proud of actually you know it's, it's 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 a book which is which has accommodated a number of different political perspectives and intellectual perspectives within this um just to, in a way i think you know there's a there's a, a sort of underlying ongoing argument about genocide and what what it should do politically what it does intellectually and what it should do intellectually you know and so on so on. um yeah
0: yeah, one of the places where I saw that kind of discussion between essays is in the discussion, or the the essays, the way some of these essays address the question of the institution of the state and the primacy of the state. And so Anton Vicevent talks about the state as necessary and uh, essential to genocide, or at least in in really significant ways. There's um, the chapter on uh, genocide and empire. I think. Hoistler and Stuki and I, I don't know, Bertini maybe, um, which talks about ways in which imperial violence tends to be more extreme, precisely where the state has either not yet arrived or is no longer. And so I wonder, as, as you've read these, um, these collectively, what what you can say about this question about the role of the state and state level institutions as opposed to the absence of a state or, or of other institutions. Know, just Donald, you can start and then you
2: this is a very big question. This is a very big question. Um, what can I intelligent intelligently say at a, at a, a semi abstract level? Well, much depends on what we take the state to define, um, and whether we're talking of thinking about the state as sort of the focal point of, of contestation or the state as 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 the, as the principal actor whether we think about the state in its capacity as legitimating certain forms of violence as opposed to actually enacting them. As we might see those, you know, there are different scenarios at play in each of those. Um, Classically, we might deal with situations in um, Australia in the 19th century where you've got a settler society enacting violence at some distance from, from the state. And often, you know, sometimes at least, with the sort of official... With the state kind of potentially objecting, you know, what are these the authorities in London parts? of The authorities in London objecting to what's going on, but actually not doing anything to impede the meaningfully impede the process, and in fact doing everything by its continued agenda to expand the logic of the process, even whilst kind of, or to, you know, or to press on with the logic of, of settlement and, and and expansion, the you know, both in terms of people and in terms of the, the economics of the situation, uh, in such a way that feeds the logic, even whilst kind of decrying the consequences. Um, and in that sense, you know, you when know, where do we where do we fit the state into that exactly? Well, it's 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 in a form of relationship with the society. It's you know, it's it's part of a relationship, it's part of the picture. In other cases, much more obviously, the state is is a direct perpetrator uh, and, and organizations under its control are, are direct perpetrators. Um you know, when we bring in bureaucracies and we bring in militaries in fairly conventional command structures. Then there's the case. You know, many cases we where we use paramilitaries. Now, I think so much of the scholarship on paramilitaries, you know, shows how this does some, somehow lead back to the state. But there's often a, you know, there's that somehow can cover a, quite a broad range of cases. If you take the SS, for instance, as as a kind of form of, you know, they are in terms of their uh, um, involvement within the mains within the state mechanisms. They're you know they're the ultimate professionalized paramilitaries, if you like. Whereas if you take the paramilitaries who um, are involved in massacring Armenian uh, deportation convoys, some of those paramilitaries are one further removed, one removed from the state. Now They're fulfilling exactly the goal the state wishes, but the state isn't always directly in control of them. And and so by definition, they bring something new to the process. Um, They're not always in control of the state uh, and the control of the state. Sometimes that's potentially a problem. You know, um, sometimes it isn't much will depend um, but you know, it depends whether we're v- viewing you know, like, clearly there they will inevitably be cases where this, the state in the form that we tend to understand it isn't there and we can always redefine the concept of state so it satisfies the conditions of being there but that seems like a rather circular activity but what it, what, what's clear is that and I think Anton makes a nice interesting argument about this in the relationship to Islamic state is 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 you know the state like quality of some of the entities that have been involved in uh, that even aren't ostensibly state like, uh, but again, you know part of this is going to come down to definition all the time, um, and I, I'll perhaps leave Dirk to touch more on, on on a bit more on the on the imperial side of things, and well you covered it quite well there, Donald. I mean, where do you stand, Dirk, on this, on on state, non-state? I I think you know that in um, thinking about, uh, I don't know, particularly, I guess, with with regard to that answer, you know, the idea about advance of state, retreat of state, and then there's some state in some situation in the middle where, where it's perhaps. Yeah. Well, conceptually, it's interesting to.
1: You know, understand genocide as formulated in, you know, in the context of the Second World War, when you have the apotheosis of militarized and totalitarian states contending with one another, you know, as well as the, 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 the states in the West. Uh, and so the, the genocide concept is formulated in, in the sense, the period of high modernism, where the, the state is at the one on the one hand, um, the sword and the shield. You know, it's the perpetrator, uh, as well as the, you know, the possible antidote, you know, the a, a rival state defeating that one. And really, that's our model of humanitarian intervention, right? The state is, the you know, a, a rogue state is the baddie, and then uh, good states will come and put an end to it. But if we go back over the last few hundred years, we can see it's often company states or para states that are committing mass violence against civilians, whether... Uh, in uh, the Congo in the 1890s, you know, when it, it's you know a personal fiefdom of the, the the Belgian king, you know, it's then it then becomes officially re- governed by a Belgian state. I think in 1908, after all the abuses are uh, exposed, uh, or in or in uh, the depredations that occurred, you know, under the East India Company in India. Uh, for hundreds of years until it was taken over by the british crown in 1857 right and then and then the adventurism of the conquistadors you know well before that you know mainly in the in the 17th century and before in the century before so you know the one can question whether the reason is, is a sensible idea of the state as it's used in the in the political science literature in, in those circumstances right so you know, we're we're talking we're talking about paramilitarized, uh, you know, company companies and corporations and and privateers, adventurers, and so forth, right? So I think we need to sort of be historically sensitive to that. If we're going to stick uh, to the twentieth century or the, the, say the middle of the nineteenth century onwards in, in Europe, then then the, the current vocabulary makes more sense.
0: One of the essays where that comes through. Um... It's actually the way the author, um, and I'm sorry, I don't I don't know her, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but of the of the SS, essay on prediction, um, asks uh, suggests at the end of her essay that we need to pay more attention to non-state actors and non-state origins, and, and so you've got two essays on prediction in this. I wonder if there is uh, where you think we're at about our ability to predict genocide usefully um, and whether usefully what what usefully means and so donald i think that's you uh where what did you make of these essays
2: well i'm always impressed by actually by political scientists and more slightly intimidated (laughs) by them as well Uh, and really these questions about what i I mean i i I think i prefer these models that uh, are generally talk about risk you know, balances of risk and, and kind of this one is a, a situation a society that saw a state that's slightly more at risk than this state judging by this that and the other character so not an attempt to at kind of specific prediction just a kind of general risk indicators because you know as i uh, as as as, as, en- as anyone recognizes there's a high level of contingent well everything's in some sense contingent when you're dealing about human causation aren't you and What we're really dealing with here are theories of causation, and 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 you're always going to have this trade-off between qualitative and quantitative approaches here. And um, traditionally, I've been quite suspicious of of some of this, of of some of the the kind of broader political scientists science literature. But that's because, I suppose, when I started to study all this stuff in the nineteen nineties, the literature there. Know, some of it, you know, very, you know, pathbreaking, but by definition, you know, early literature dealing with, you know, um, and, and yet to be refined, you know, kind of bivariate, anal- bivariate analysis instead of multivariate analysis and, and and the number of variables being not very many or being kind of crudely factored in, um, And now we just, there's much more data about, and there are many more sophisticated techniques for factoring in this data, but you're you're still ultimately dealing with with kind of causal theories. And those of us who've sort of written about about one or a couple of cases, devoted a very great deal of effort to expanding, you know, to explaining one particular case will always sniff a bit at these models. But nonetheless, you know, I I think um, they are, there's, there's a very great deal of very sophisticated thought going into it and the different situations, you know, not just regime types, but particular sort of situations about power struggles, particular sorts of economic crisis, um, particular forms of state structure and state capacity or the absence thereof. Um, so much, it seems to me, has been um you know this when I mentioned earlier having looked looked at some of these essays actually and really thinking oh, this is embarrassing I haven't read this that or the other book which I really should attend to um you know, so many journals now publishing relevant material uh, on, on, on on this stuff and we wanted the the two different um essays in there because um one of them uh, predicting genocide Holly's essay on predicting genocide was, Kind of excellence to my mind survey of uh the state of the art in terms of fairly you know the, the fairly conventional predictive model building stuff that's come up with that come, produces these sort of risk registers and um um and that we felt that was very much complemented by deborah and stephen um essay on the absence of genocide in the presence of risk when genocide does not occur um those situations where you know so much of the, the the literature on predicting genocide and causation is based on what you know the, a no variance model right you take cases of genocide that has occurred you look out, seek out the causal antecedents and you say what's, what's 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 this stuff got in common right now a much more sophisticated level, that's still what many of these predictive things are doing. Uh, although others have gone well beyond that and looking at cases where, you know, taking the taking those sorts of insights from those sorts of investigations and then applying them to cases where genocide hasn't yet happened. And the idea is basically, when might genocide happen? Going back to what um, Deborah Myerson and Stephen McLaughlin call this root cause paradigm. So you investigate a series of cases that have happened. Look at the characteristics there. Say, what other societies are evincing these sorts of characteristics? What's the potential danger of something like genocide happening there? What about Deborah and Stephen would ask situations in which you know lots of these warning signs have been there, even for quite a long time in many societies, yet genocide hasn't happened? What do we do about that? You know, what do we do about those factors of? Um, I can't quite think of the word, the factors that are de-escalatory factors, mm-hmm. factors that, get, that mitigate rather than enhance risk. How how do we take into account kind of those? Because if we're looking at, if we're going around creating uh, early warning signals and saying, you know, is such and such a thing there? Is, is this kind of economic setup there? Is this kind of, you know, political structure there? Is this kind of trigger moment or civil war situation going on there, right? And you tick all of those boxes. Well, what if there are a whole bunch of other boxes that you haven't even recognized need ticking because they're actually mitigating factors rather than uh, aggravating factors? Um, You know, so what about if there are some kind of some other kind of, I don't know, communal conflict resolution structure that we don't yet recognise? What about if there are some international, you know, mediations going on there? What about if there are some sort of, you know, non-governmental efforts within the society in question to turn it in? And so on and so forth and looking at mitigating factors and sort of factoring, factoring those in as kind of, uh, as, as kind of potentially being present in the same sort of societies where aggravating factors are present and we just haven't had a look at those. And taking examples and they look variously at um, Botswana, um, Iran with the Baha'i, Baha'i ma- minority and and another case which I can't quite recall just now. Looking at cases where, as it were, some of the auguries were there for for a very nasty outcome and yet the nasty outcome hasn't materialised. And what we can learn in terms of predicting genocide from these cases where we might well have predicted an outcome and got a sort of false positive, as it were.
0: And I will just point out, that while we don't have time to talk about it, we have, we have maybe 15 minutes left in the interview, but but Jonathan Leader Maynard's essay on ideology is relevant here. And I'll point you that he was also interviewed on the New Book network. And I think did a book launch on International Association of Genocide Studies as well, So our scholars, sorry, so that you can find those there. Um, So prediction is about how genocides begin. Intervention, and I was really struck by this framing by Alex Bellamy and Stephen McLaughlin, is about how genocides end. Um, And so I wonder, they write at the end of their essay, the problem then is not that there is too much humanitarian intervention in times of putative genocide, but that there is far too little. Because intervention to end genocide is so necessary and yet so rare, we commentators might help by worrying less about the damage done to international order by armed intervention against tyrants and more about the damage done to really existing human beings with international when international society stands aside." So I wonder, they make the claim that genocides end either because they are successful or someone else stops them. So I wonder how you all responded to that claim and then their kind of conclusion that we need to be more willing to to run the risks of that intervention pose in the interest of the mitigating the harm that happens.
1: Well that's a terrific question, Kelly. I mean this is the chapter on humanitarian intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it military intervention because, you know, often that's what it comes down to, but the, the, the literature which they're responding to and developing is the humanitarian intervention literature, which has been booming since the 1990s because of the, you know, the the failure or the absence of intervention in Rwanda, the partial intervention in the Yugoslav, post-Yugoslav situation, then Kosovo later in the decade, and, and then you know, the the, the, the intense intervention debate around Darfur early in the noughts, and then the concurrent debate at the UN level about the responsibility to protect doctrine, which was uh, signed off remarkably by the Security Council in 2006, which is a humanitarian intervention doctrine by another name. So there's been an intensive debate about this. Now, the, the Consensus, you know, in the early 2000s, and uh, in, in, in this was something that China and Russia were prepared to sign off on, though they were diminished powers compared to today. I mean, this is important that this was the age of a, American triumphalism and unipolarity after the end of the Cold War. And uh, the Western powers managed to to convince them to sign off on a, on a sort of a, a mitigated humanitarian intervention doctrine. Uh, that, however, of course, under Chapter 7 uh, stipulations of the UN Charter meant that uh, any intervention would need to be approved by the Security Council. You know, so all the great powers, right? Which they very rarely do, as we know, right? Uh, that moment has, um, you know, was soured after the debate uh, regarding you know, the lack of intervention in Syria. And slightly, be, you know, so which is, you know, six or seven years later. And uh, in 2011, of course, the NATO intervention in Libya, you know, which brought down the state and and has led to a, you know, effectively a civil war and great instability there ever since. And they're responding to the criticisms, that is the authors, uh, Alex Bellamy and Stephen McLaughlin, are responding to the criticisms of the humanitarian intervention literature in the wake of Iraq, reflectively. Okay. And so this is a very important essay because it really advances the, the discussion beyond the pro and anti positions from 20 years ago. You know, There's a lot more empirical uh, case material to work with. And here they answer the sceptics, <clears throat> as, you, as your quotation indicates by saying you know we we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, it is true they admit that states cynically use the humanitarian intervention rhetoric to advance their own cynical imperial aims uh, but that shouldn't detract from the the outcome which is that in many cases an intervention will save lives okay and that's, that's their position. Now, much turns on the detail, the devil's in the detail. Did the NATO intervention, in which Russia and China now uh, argue, greatly exceeded the UN Security Council mandate? You know, for them, it was about all necessary measures to, pre- to prevent the massacre. right? But NATO ended up taking it further, well, at least parts of NATO, ended up taking it further to regime change. And it's because of this expansion of the man, of the mandate or the remit um, that China and Russia felt was illegitimate, that they always it was one of the reasons, they always opposed the same kind of solution for Syria. Now, the answer that Alex and Stephen come up with is that there was already a civil war going on in in Libya, and there's no evidence to to prove. That the the destruction of the Gaddafi state worsened things, and they go one step further and say that, and and here they have a point in terms of numbers, the the number of fatalities and the refugees uh, numbers that have been uh, created by the Syrian civil war are far worse than Libya. So in fact, you know, had there been they speculate some kind of intervention in Syria we may have had a a least worse scenario than we have today. So that's where the debate is at uh, in terms of the empirical side of things. And I'm not qualified. I don't feel qualified to intervene on this, but I'm interested in observing this debate. Uh, And from that, they they derive the conclusion that the humanitarian intervention uh, and responsibility to protect doctrine still has legs. Now, since then, We've had the Russian invasion or the reinvasion of further parts of Ukraine, because of course they did invade in 2014. And that is briefly mentioned uh, in one one or two sentences here. But it isn't given the analytical weight in this chapter that I think they would now if they had a chance to rewrite it. Because we know that Putin very cynically mimics the humanitarian intervention. Pretexts of the West, for example, in Kosovo, and in, you know, which, in, which entailed uh, the bombing of Belgrade, which, uh, without UN Security Council authorization, which Putin found scandalous. Right? And he's right, it was illegal in a formal sense, right? Uh, and uses the notion, Putin uses the notion of protecting you know, ethnic Russians in, in eastern and southern Ukraine and in Crimea as a pretext for a military intervention. And he's using the West's own rhetoric against, you know, a, a state which was moving from the Russian orbit, this is Ukraine, to the Western orbit, uh, in order to defend what the Russians called their near abroad, you know, which is those ethnic Russians, as they see it, stranded in these new post-Soviet states, for example, in the Baltic states and so forth, uh, who they, who, who Russian nationalists and certainly Putin see as, you know, beleaguered, and, you know, beleaguered by the Baltic states, for example, or beleaguered in in Ukraine and Moldova, and uh, therefore it's incumbent upon the upon Russia to protect them, and in fact engage in a humanitarian intervention, and that was the pretext that was used in, say, Georgia, regarding uh, the in two thousand and eight, and that is mentioned in the in the chapter. So, you know, there are those who were less well disposed to humanitarian intervention and to the global responsibility to protect doctrine, who say that the large scale and widespread use or if you like, misuse of this doctrine by Russia actually destroys it. You know, we really need to come up with with a with a new conversation. That might be a chapter for the third installment of um a book that Donald uh, and I may do down the track.
0: Donald, do you have a response to those
2: comments? Well, I, I, was, I was thinking about your original question about 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 the chapter itself. Well, I think that, um, you know, they're right that, that it, you know, as far, at least in the vast majority of cases, yeah, it's either a question of the, the perpetrators finish the job or for whatever reason decide not to not to finish the job or, or there's some external... Intervention which stops it, you know, and and I think um just thinking back about yeah, of course, right about thinking about the nineteen nineties is the crucible of thinking so much about this. I mean, not just the nineteen nineties, but that's when it gets such force you know, situations where um I mean, so a lot of the debate around this seems to be very similar in, in tone to the debate around basic concepts of universalism, full stop. Right, and the idea about thinks back to the work of edward Said, talking about um the idea of sort of western universalism ending up being a kind of trojan horse for all sorts of things now does that make make us do away with the idea of universalism Mm -hmm. or does that make us just challenge potential abuses of the idea of universalism and here you know do we do away with the idea of humanitarian intervention or do we Challenge various kind of abuses of the idea of humanitarian intervention. Well, I'm still, you know, I still do believe in humanity. I mean, anyone who sat a aghast watching non-intervention Rwanda or being aghast at, you know, Dutch soldiers not doing what we think they should have done at Srebrenica, um, must, by extension, think that they should have done more in those situations and, and you know, and done and you know, and they're also questions about practicalities and so on and so forth. But, you know. Clearly, there are cases where we think more should have been done, or I think you know I think more should have been done, and that makes me you know believe in the idea that the integrity of the idea of humanitarian intervention. Clearly, that idea can also be suborned as for subverted. And clearly, there can be some cases of a grey area where you are not sure whether it's humanitarian or let's call, let's call it just basically imperial. Uh, and there are good good you know there are some you know and that's where some of the most interesting and difficult arguments are had because sometimes even interventions of a sort of quasi-imperial sort can have humanitarian outcomes you know as for instance in vietnam's in you know invasion of cambodia in the end of 78 early 79 you know um there's a clear humanitarian outcome to that as you know alex and steve talk about that in the book so well yeah uh, um yeah you know, there and there are specific case studies where we might just disagree about what's going on and the efficacy i mean for instance um um what's his name cooperman cooper scholar cooperman alan cooperman, alan. Alan cooperman yeah. wrote a you know a very interesting ass- assessment of the libyan situation and and how intervention might have worsened the situation in humanitarian terms or not. Now uh, Stephen and Alex have a slightly different take. I think there are there are empirical arguments about that case. But in terms of the broad thrust of 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 of, of, of their article, I think you know it's well it's you know you know it's obviously I've, I've just said I mean I'm in favor of humanitarian intervention. I just think there are there are very interesting arguments and important arguments to be had about where things stop being that. And those of us who are all Critical of imperial interventions, and I'm very well, definitely one of those too. Um, you know, are acutely concerned about questions of of, of maximal consistency in intervention, um, and we're also, I suppose, concerned. And I think you, meant, you mentioned a quote that from Alex and Stephen's essay at the end there, where they said, "You know, perhaps less, be less concerned about kind of the way in which." I suppose the Iraq syndrome talked less about. But the problem with, with the Iraq is that it did, in a sense, in, at least in my view, invalidate or kind of make much more difficult what I would see as as more good faith interventionism. And, and so in a sense, it's, it's, you can't just brush that aside and say, you know, let's let's. You know that there are certain situations, just as there are certain situations in which external inter- influence I- intervention can aggravate situations. There must, by definition, be situations in which external influence intervention can make things better. Uh, and and what I really like as well is at the very end of their essay. You know, I think it's. I mean, I think it's. You know, it's, it's it covers a lot of ground. In this essay it makes a lot of good points. At The end of this essay, they also talk about basically. I can't remember the very final sentence, which is basically about the principle of doing no harm. In the first instance, when you're thinking about kind of interconnected world you know intervention you know there's a kind of paradigm of it going in boots on the ground now that might only be the very a very you know that might only kind of constitute a very small subset of the cases we might want it to be to be a bigger subset you know (laughs) under certain conditions right but there's a much bigger potential subset, which isn't so much boots on the ground, just stopping arming people who've already got the boots on the ground from the perpetrator's side, you know, stopping kind of supporting, um, you know, tyrannical regimes because I don't know they've got oil and want to sell it to you (laughs) you know this whole host of kind of structural factors you know not arming the you know indonesian new order regime that wanted to murder all of those leftists in 1965 you know not training paramilitaries in american you know in 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 south america these can be kind of just as important at least and actually much more doable the action of you know stopping the arms sales to that kind of perpetrator regime stopping and giving them cover those kind of factors Will give, you know, reducing their impunity on the international scene, reducing reducing their capacity to actually commit atrocities. Now, all of those sorts of things are, are, you know, in the same kind of universe as humanitarian interventions, or also, you know, about kind of potentially humanitarian action. So, I think that side of things that they touch on at the end is, is also really really important, and and it's and and you know, and gets us thinking about. By extension, into the, the much broader ways in which the way the world is set up can actually facilitate violence. Because, on the whole, you know, having said obviously that you know, you know, because I view myself in hopefully first and foremost as a humanitarian, I must, by definition, support humanitarian intervention. Um, but that will also open up to a whole bunch of other ways in which so much of the way the world is set up is almost the opposite of that, you know, and it can actually be quite a subversive way into a big system critique you know while starting from a position which is which is kind of sounds like you know um you know the good guys need to go in on their on their white horses and kind of sort out the situation in some some country where you know and there's and that's where that's kind of potentially imperial overtones um and you know the idea there is of Let's say in this situation, the West being the knight in shining armor coming sort 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 things out. As soon as you expand expand the concept, the sort of ways in which, you know, powerful countries in the West might act to minimize the chance of gross atrocity elsewhere. You start to of think of the ways in which they're already implicated in the actual commission of it uh, and the acts of commission rather than just acts of omission. Because so much of the literature on humanitarian intervention is we should have intervened there, but didn't. Whereas actually, in some sort of way, we're always intervening in lots of different situations in a way that isn't obvious, but but is also potentially culpable, right? So that would be my kind of broad view of it. Once you start from the humanitarian principle, you know, which I do, you know, and hopefully I think I think it's the, the supreme principle for me in the sense of, you know, standing over it above my other political commitments and ideological commitments would be the humanitarian one. But it has to be taken in the round, you know.
0: Well, it seems an appropriate place to stop. I have a long list of questions that we haven't gotten to, uh, one of which involves Donald's essay in this uh, volume, which we probably don't have time to get to. Uh, I'll simply say to the listeners that this is a wonderful collection of essays, and you should run out and you should buy it and you should read it. Don't just put it on the table in front of your uh, fireplace and pretend to your neighbors that you're an educated person, but actually read it. So I'll jump, I guess, just to the end of, of, My list of questions as a way of concluding the interview, Um, I know we have a a wide variety of people who listen, um, but many of you are graduate students or early practitioners just getting acquainted with um, this field. And so I asked both Dirk and and Donald to think about maybe one or two books um, that each of them can suggest that have been influential in their thinking or in the thinking of the field in this decade or so encompass between these two volumes um, what should I I often phrase this as I don't want to grade this weekend what can I go read instead of grading um, and so I'll invite Dirk to go first and then Donald what what book or two would you suggest listeners go read
1: this weekend well the book, book that I recently finished and have co-written is sort of a long commentary on for a forum in, in a journal. Mm. Uh, it's called violent fraternities by the Indian historian at Cambridge Shruti Kapila, mm. which is an, in, an intellectual history of, uh, nationhood and, uh, communal violence and, and, uh, uh, non-fraternity, uh, in the 50 years before the partition of India. And, uh, you know, it's a really bracing uh, and at times tough read, mm. um, but one's introduced to a range of thinkers uh, that one doesn't usually read in, in the intellectual history of India. I mean, obviously people are, are familiar with Gandhi and Nehru, and you know, they are discussed, but you, it introduces to a range of other thinkers, Muslim uh, and Hindu and uh, secular secularizing who who are not necessarily focusing on the anti-colonial anti-british struggle as the uh, the central question of the day but the question of you know what will the indian nation be constituted by who who is an indian in the emphatic sense and uh, given the the manifest diversity of that continent and civilization and you know multiple civilizations they come up with very different answers where in which for many you know other indians are seen as the prime enemy not the british and and the question of violence is seen as constitutive to the question of the nation i'm not going to get into more detail than that but uh, those that are interested in the in, in violence more generally and say that the violence of partition which was considerable uh Including sexual violence in 1947. You know, we'll read this book, Prophet.
0: Donald, what about you? What's your suggestion?
2: Oh, so this is this is tough. Um, so I really, I really liked Omar McDoom's recent book on Rwanda.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I think it's just you know he's written. He's, I think he's a political scientist, isn't he? Um, yes, at the LSE. And um, but he writes well. I mean, he writes in a way which is. You know, not too jargonized you know and it's kind of very accessible for for all but it so it seems to me uh, they, and, they, and and one of the may, many things that political scientists are really good at is really being really, really, very clear <laughs> about what they're saying and what the what precise claims they're making and it seems to me they you know it deals with this question at a number of analytical levels and each time seems to make a, a, a bunch of incredibly acute points very very clearly and very very well and um i am only a bit of a way through it, but I've been reading uh, Ungur's Ungo's um, book on paramilitaries as well, which I think is um, characteristically very good as well. And, and um, yeah, I, 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 one which I'm very much looking forward to reading and I haven't yet is uh, Clemence Pinot's book on war and genocide in South Sudan. Um, so uh, that looks interesting, um, but uh, I, you know, hope it's as good as it looks because it looks pretty really interesting. Um, yeah. I, I, that would be those would be my kind of my my kind of picks at the moment um yeah yeah
0: well that's a good list and I'm sure my students will look at me and not be annoyed that I'm not turning back papers next week when I spend my weekend looking at these these books but I want want to say thank you very much I I know that you uh are uh, prodigious in your production of, of new books and articles and everything. So I won't ask specifically about what you're working on next. But I do hope that um, when they come out, you'll be back on the New Books Network and hopefully on New Books and Genocide Studies. And until then, um, I wish you a, a great rest of the fall. And thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Good to be with you. Thanks very
2: much, Kelly.